You are about to listen to the full interview with Ron Moorhead. Sections of it were originally included in our Sierra Sounds episode. Ron Moorhead captured audio recordings of purported Sasquatch vocalizations in the Sierras in the early 70s. We spoke with him about his incredible experiences and what he has learned through decades of research. We hope you enjoy. Actually, retired businessman. I, uh, I started this Bigfoot thing in 1971 uh, when I was invited into a camp in the High Sierras. And I'll get into that in a minute, but uh, really, I, none of us were looking for Bigfoot or anything about it. We were just as a hunting camp. And uh, so my background's in business, and uh, I had several restaurants and a hotel in Yosemite. And uh, that's what I did. And uh, the other guys that were involved in this uh, camp at uh, Sierra Camp were also businessmen, most of them. And uh, most of us didn't talk about what went on up there at the time, only to our friends and relatives, because it was kind of, uh, kind of weird, to be honest with you, some of it was. And uh, so I'll get into that uh, here in a little bit, but we uh, enjoy being with you. Thanks for asking me to be here. Of course. Uh, you mentioned you're, you're a, a business owner. What You said you managed restaurants in Yosemite? Yeah, I owned them. Uh-huh. When did you first learn about this camp and uh, some of the associated sightings with it? It was early 1971 when the Johnson brothers went into the camp. And uh, that evening, they experienced some really raucous noises. And uh, they thought at first it was a bear, but then they realized bears don't make sounds like that. So they the avid hunters had been visiting this camp since 1958, actually been going there hunting. And uh, they went outside after all the commotion stopped, and they seen this big, huge uh, five-toed footprint in the mud. And uh, they uh, came out and told the other guys, which I wasn't part of the group at that time, and uh, they all wanted to know what was going on. So they went back up with recorders, and just in case of whatever happened, happened again, and sure enough, it did. One of the guys... I was so freaked out about it because pretty aggressive sounding noises, some of them. And uh, he he left a note early the next morning as soon as the sun hit up and he headed out. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't want to go back. So he came out and told the wives that, yeah, what the Johnson brothers said is true. There's some kind of a monster up there and something's going on. And So they were all worried because the guys didn't come out the day they were supposed to. And uh, they wanted him to go back and check on them because they didn't know at the time. None of them, nobody knew at the time. I was friends to them all, but I wasn't a hunter at the time. And uh, anyway, uh, nobody knew what they were dealing with at the time. If it was a guess they would eat you or what they was going to do. So um, he, he would go back, but he wanted me to go with him. And I was a friend, and they knew they could trust me. So I, uh, I took the hike into camp. It's about an eight-mile trek, pretty aggressive trek at that. And uh, so, uh, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and uh, right deep into the wilderness, and uh, it's about 8,400 feet to camp elevation. So uh, it was pretty difficult to get to, but we got there. The guys were okay. They all came out. <clears throat> they had stayed an extra day because of the stuff going on, because these things did come back, whatever they are. They have big feet. They got a big voice, so we call them Bigfoot. I don't know what they are. <laughs> they, they might be just pure alien, as far as we know, but. Uh, something gave them the vocal mechanism for language, and uh, only humans are supposed to have that, according to uh, Dr. Lieberman at uh, Brown University. But these things have the mechanism for language, and that's uh, what we determined in some of the studies. It wasn't until 1972, when uh, we, uh, winter of 71, 72, when we, uh, Warren Johnson, the leader of the group, he contacted Ivan Sanderson. And Ivan Sanderson uh, read the letter that Warren wrote him 
23-page handwritten letter. I thought it was probably a hoax. Somebody pulled his leg, but he thought he sent it out to Peter Byrne, who's in the Dallas, Oregon at the time, and studied Bigfoot there. And so Peter's read it. He thought the same thing, but he thought he'd uh, send it down to Al Berry, who was in California where we lived. And uh, Al Berry got it and uh, thought he'd come down and interview us, and uh, he did. And got kind of caught up in wondering who's pulling these guys' leg. Uh, he was an investigative reporter at the time, working in Reading. And uh, we invited him in for the 72 uh, season and went in as soon as the snow let us and started going in. He started experiencing the same thing, uh, these things coming around. But he was still looking for who could be hoaxing this thing. And uh, nobody has repeated visits like this. Most of the things he gives a sighting behind a car or something, something like that. So anyway, uh, he ended up getting caught up in it and uh, still looking for the hoax uh, all the time, but he never could find anybody pulling anybody's leg. Only thing they left was uh, the big foot impressions and glimpses occasionally. He never got to see anything. Uh, he wasn't there as often as we were, but uh, why he didn't, I don't know, because he's had his microphone uh, remoted up about 40 feet behind the shelter, captured some really clear sounds one night. and. You'd think that he could have seen something because he had his head stuck up uh, through the shelter roof, their little hole they made. But he never saw it, never saw what was making the sound. It sounded like things holding the mic sometimes is so close. But uh, he had to figure it was behind some big rocks up there or behind a big tree, huge trees up there. Uh, before you went out to the camp, did you, did you have any conception of Bigfoot? Like, was, something, was Bigfoot something you knew about or the group knew about, or was this kind of your first introduction to the concept well, of Sasquatch? Well, I wouldn't Sasquatch? say, uh, uh, my first, uh, we weren't looking for Bigfoot. I didn't think about Bigfoot. Nobody up there had been. Uh, the only thing we knew was the Patterson film that came out in 67. But anyway, uh, it, it's been pretty much established that that film is credible. And, uh, we, again, weren't looking for Bigfoot, though. Now, when I went up with this guy, I didn't know what it was. Nobody did. Uh, I went up with Donald on the trip in to check the guys and see if they were okay. I uh, I seen the big track, and I said, well, that's a Bigfoot, whatever made that. <laughs> so, therefore, it's kind of considered a Bigfoot. Uh, I don't believe uh, that they are all the same type. I just don't, all the ones we dealt with were up there in the Sierras, but not all of them all over the world, and they're reported everywhere, are in the same genome, I don't think. They may be a subspecies off of it. Some of them may be a relic hominid that has evolved. I think some of them have probably crossbred with indigenous people and lost some of their original attributes, trying to gain some maybe, but um, we're not the, uh, we're not the head of the food chain as far as I'm concerned here. <laughs> we just have dominion, but we don't have. Yeah, there's more things going on than meets our three-dimensional eyes. The the footprints you found out there were actually kind of unique in the sense that the the toes um, were splayed, which are, is a little bit of a different characteristic than some of the other um, traditional casts that you might see. Was that a consistent trait? They also that trait. They, all the creatures uh, uh, had the same type of splayed uh, footprint that uh, we that people see now that I posted. Uh, and this is the same prints we've been seeing for years up there and since I've been going up there for just 50 years now I've been studying this phenomenon and so no they all did that's what kind of leads me I asked, I asked Dr. Meldrum Jeff Meldrum who's a footprint expert and uh, he wanted to see him but I see no upside to that because 
he based everything on the Patterson track, which I don't think is compared at all. Uh, he shows a mid-tarsal break in those, and uh, ours didn't seem to have that. But again, we didn't have the same turf up there, the decomposed granite, and, uh, uh, pine needles all over the place. So uh, I just, I just didn't, didn't let him look at them, didn't give them to him. He could see the pictures of them, but uh, I'm afraid he would use the classical science to try to judge them and thinking that they have to compare the Patterson tracks or they're not real. And we knew they were real. Whatever was up there was, was real. And nobody's pulling anybody's leg. And how could anybody be up there year after year after year showing the same type of footprints? And they're different sizes because we had different sized creatures. Uh, we had a nine inch track one time in the snow with an 80, 18 inch track. And uh, when I told us there was a little one, you know, they do procreate. And we also have recorded the voices of the little one. So, uh, quite sure that there's a family of them there there were and uh, that's what we're dealing with is the family of them and, uh, so these sounds that you recorded kind of became dubbed as the sierra sounds um that's how they're popularly known can you give me a little more detail about how you actually ended up recording like what was the actual were you using a tape recorder was it were you inside of a cabin how were those actually recorded well, the way we recorded those, we had a shelter up there, which we go into. It's kind of a makeshift shelter of logs, maybe against some cables that were wrapped around a tree, and put some uh, deadfall across the top of it, and put plastic over that. So we were huddled up inside this little group of trees. We call it the shelter, and we would stick our microphones outside, uh, uh, outside the shelter, generally through the walls, uh, the deadfall logs, and uh, normally and uh, wait for them to come around. We had cassette recorders. That's all you had. I had a top-notch, uh, one of the best you could buy at the time. And I hauled it up on mules and take care of it and had hysterical microphones outside each side of the walls of the shelter. Headset on. I had a rigged up a mercury switch so I could just turn it over. It wouldn't make a sound. You wouldn't even know it was recording. And that's some incredible sounds, but they all unfortunately got lost in a house fire I had sometime after that. So, uh, I, uh, I, anyway, that's how we all recorded pretty much. Al Berry uh, re- remoted his microphone up that area, like I said, about 40 feet from the shelter that one time. And we, were, we were all inside the shelter when these things would be making the noises. So people say, well, if you can't see what made the noise, you don't know what made the noise. And that's so true. You don't. It wasn't until 1974 when they started interacting with us when I was outside the shelter. Me and another guy came in with the supplies on the horses and mules and and uh, that was that was the night I saw one, and uh, I saw what was making the sound, and uh, it was uh, not sound, but sounds, plural, they just all over us that night. We thought they was going to come in and let us ride on their shoulders. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but that's the night I recorded the Samurai Cry, they call it, uh, and that's the night I saw one making the sounds running down through the forest right away. Really fast, very rapid, very smooth. And uh, there was another one, we think a young one and a mother down below, uh, he was going to, and uh, that's the uh, that's the thought we had because we heard the sounds, you know, two down there uh, making the sounds. That's where the little voice comes in, and you got the big one behind us, up behind me up here, uh, making his uh, cries and sounds. And they were asking me something that night. I feel very sure about that. I just don't know what it was. Uh, we become what we thought was kind of friendly. They was trying to. They weren't trying to eat us. We liked that part. They weren't uh, tearing up our camp or messing with us uh, in that regard. So we thought, uh, you know, we had a 
uh, a relationship going on with them, I suppose. And uh, so we started trying to uh, work with that. And it was a little bit concerning at first because the first sounds were very aggressive, the sounds we recorded in 71. That's why I started going back up there as much as I could in 71 and taking my little recorder with me. And then I bought a really good recorder that winter. 72, when Al Berry went up, I had a really good tape recorder. He was recording too, and those are the sounds that he recorded. Uh, we recorded that night, and he had the University of Wyoming got a professor of electro who was in here there to study them, and that was for a year-long study. <clears throat> and he uh, he wrote a paper on that and put it out in a, in a book called Anthropology of the Unknown and uh, Man Like Monsters on Trial. That was presented at a symposium in British Columbia in 1978, I think. They produced it in a book, his, and put his paper in that book in 1980. So that was the first really good stuff because he had determined that the sounds were not pre-recorded or re-recorded. They were not speed up or slowed down. They were just... Uh, they were original. Alberry knew he was professional. He had masters in, in English, or excuse me, yeah, yeah, masters in English too, but in science. And uh, he he knew what it took to really get this on the table for people to look at. He knew it was certain, it was pretty special. We didn't realize how special it was, and we underestimated what we were dealing with up there. We were thinking of them just as kind of a wild ape in the woods that hadn't been documented yet, and a lot of people still think that. And that's okay if they want to think that, but I got to tell you, they're probably wrong. <laughs> so these things are more than that, a lot more. And they started doing some things up there that we could not put a finger on. You could not figure out how they did it and what was going on, lights and sounds and things that just had no classical answer, in classical science anyway. Al Berry, having a master's degree in science, said, don't tell people about this stuff. He says, or they won't ask you to speak anywhere or talk anywhere. <laughs> And so we didn't talk about that for quite a while, but I do now because I think I found the science that might might help people understand more about what these things could be. That's quantum science, and it's a it's a definite science. There's no doubt about it. But classical science don't look into that. Classical science is based on on uh, classical science is based on everything being physical, predictable, measurable, and uh, quantum science is not predictable. You know, it's it's uh, it's outside of our three-dimensional reality, really. But it's it's a proven science through mathematics. Einstein, Bohr, Tesla, those guys all uh, studied it about a hundred, a little over a hundred years ago. It's that it's that new. But you can't get uh, these classical scientists who've been trained in a discipline to to get outside of the box that they've been trained in, and they just have to go by these rules and have to have this much proof, this much. I asked them one time, I'm in, a, I'm in a kind of forum with a bunch of them, I said, tell somebody here, if everything's measurable, like classical science says it has to be, how far is it to the end of the universe? Well, who can answer that one? Nobody can. But you got to get outside of that. And Dr. Edgar Mitchell, astronaut, he said, it takes classical and quantum sciences together to have clear perception. And I like that. Uh, because it does. You have to realize that there's more going on outside of our three-dimensional reality than, than we know. And you have to look into what that could be. We only see within certain frequencies. And according to Tesla, everything is energy, frequency, and vibration. So that comes into quantum science, which led me to my second book, which is The Quantum Bigfoot. And I kind of explained how I think a lot of this stuff really works 
And actually, quantum science is how the whole universe works. Every law uh, falls into that. And I thought there had to be a law behind everything, and classical science was not answering some of the phenomena we was experiencing up there at the camp. Well, that's yeah, a long answer it's an, to it's a, a short question. <laughs> no, it's, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I'm reading this book right now. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called um, Where the Footprints End. Um, and it explores a lot of the supernatural phenomenon associated with seeing these creatures and how a lot of these accounts don't really get reported because it doesn't fit into maybe the traditional idea of what these creatures are, which is flesh and blood. But many, many encounters with these creatures also come along with really anomalous behavior, um, lights, odd noises, uh, things that would almost be associated with what you would consider like a, a poltergeist or a spirit. You talked about in 74, you, you actually saw one of these creatures. Can you talk about that encounter and what that experience was like and what you saw? Yeah, uh, I saw one in 1974 when we were just got into camp. And I write about this in my first book, Voices in the Wilderness. But we had started up the trail and some pretty good trekking the trail with the horses, mules, pack supplies in. Uh, and uh, I saw something spooked our animals on the way in. And uh, we thought that could be a bear, could be a deer jumping around, it could be anything. But uh, we kept going, and about an hour or so up the trail, I saw a big, big five-toed footprint perpendicular to the trail. I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> that fits, because where the track came from was right down the ravine where we had previously had that experience with something. And uh, so when we got to camp, I'm firm, 100% sure they already was there. And uh, we found that out and established it within our own minds the next morning when we we started looking around because we got in there late in the evening and started unpacking and that's when I started having this encounter and that's when I saw one that night and uh, I started recording I got my little recorder out of the saddlebag and uh, I didn't haul my big one in at the time and uh, booked the set recorder and started recording my interaction with them and I got the wood knocks uh, we say it's wood knock I've never seen one knock on a tree but you hear these knocks and they're rhythmic what we were recording was rhythmic and uh you also hear them clocking rocks together the same way, and then you hear whooping. Different types of whoops will go around, and I think that's how they interact with each other before they start yapping their chatter. And they do chatter very rapidly when they get into chattering and uh, to each other. And, uh, they were also chattering to me that night, and uh, that's when I thought, these things are really trying to get to know us or tell us something. Well, maybe I already know us. Maybe we're Maybe they try and tell us, understand us a little bit. They, uh, they're very unique. They're very big, but I, I think uh, there's a lot more uh, going on to them than what we understand to this day. So I work on that, and I've been studying that for a long time. I got into quantum physics uh, well over 10 years ago. I'm not a physicist, but I, I think anybody can pick up a uh, quantum physics 101 and get a hold of some of this stuff and understand where it's coming from. Uh, that night I saw one, uh, like I said, made this big samurai cry behind me and started shooting off across. It was so fast, I, I can't tell you any details of it. It was very big, very smooth. It's how it ran through the woods like that, I don't know, but it did, down to where the other two were. And uh, that's the night I saw one, and that's the night that I know when we could say we saw, I, saw, I could say I saw what made the sound. <laughs> Before that, we knew what was making the sounds, but again, you didn't see what was making the sound. But when you can see what makes the sounds, it makes it 100% positive in your head, even though 
I was positive prior to that. That's no body up there, no man anyway, was really interfering with us. It, it just wasn't that way. And that we when did you see any details of? Did you see its face or anything? Details like that, or was it no. um, was it running too fast? No, to... It was too fast. No, it didn't stop. <laughs> it just, like a train going by you. I know a lot of um, sightings of Bigfoot also come along with this this idea of a, a foul smell. Did you ever experience anything like that around the camp? No. Uh, well, we did one time, and that was in 1976. It was when we had shot a bear in camp. It was tearing up our camp. We, what woke us up was, wasn't the bear, but it was some yelling, uh, Bigfoot yelling up behind us, uh, the sounds of the creature. And then also we heard barrels being rummaged out there and food supplies being apart and everything. And we looked out and it was a bear. But, uh, long story short, we ended up having to shoot the bear to keep him. He, was, he liked our food. He wanted our food. <laughs> we wanted our food ourselves. So uh, in retrospect, I kind of wish we didn't have to shoot him, but we didn't have much of a choice that night. He, he was coming down. I wish I'm just a few feet away from us. Just my friend and I, Bill. And, uh, I next day we uh, it gets a little bit gory, so I'm not sure how people. <laughs> it's, would, a, it's okay. okay. No, it's fine. You can get into it. <laughs> well, we skinned him out and ate him. Okay, ate his hindquarters and deep pit barbecue. Really, pretty tasty actually. Those mountain bears eat berries; they don't eat garbage, so uh, wasn't bad at all. And uh, it really was kind of freaky when you skin him out and look at him. Uh, it looks like a person. You know? <laughs> it's not. Not, uh, it's a little bit tricky. And uh, I, uh, anyway, that's uh, that's what happened. And I, I don't know if that's why they stopped coming in real close, but they never came in close right next to us like they used to after that. You'd hear the sounds from a distance and you'd know that they're toying with you because you'd see their tracks occasionally, but, but they didn't come in real close. And maybe we just failed the test. And the test was, I think, uh, we're being tested on this planet as, as we live and how we respond to every situation is more important than the situation itself. And if you respond with killing something, that's probably not the best thing to do. Uh, and there's a lot of killing going on in this earth and planet. And I don't know. Get off the subject pretty easy, right? So just... <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um so during your time, so you've you would have gone out there for many many years. How many different people came out to the to the location, and how many different people actually heard these these calls and these vocal patterns? Oh, I would say just the group I was involved in. Um, I did take the cryptolinguist up there who studied these things in two thousand eight and said they have language that was very important. And uh, uh, really, there were six of us all together. Uh, Couple guys have died in between, and uh, one guy is too old to go up there. And uh, I don't—I didn't take people in there. A lot of people want to go in there, but I don't do that because the Johnsons' are heirs, their sons and grandpeople now, are uh, still try to hunt that area when they can, and they don't want it any day because it's a premier hunting area. Just we never didn't get a deer when we was hunting. So I started hunting after that. I got involved with these guys, and. Uh, I don't hunt anymore because I kind of think that uh, unless you're going to eat what you kill, you shouldn't be killing them. Uh, so really, I took uh, David Pilates up there, the missing 401, the hunted, um, to do a filming in 2018. 
and a cryptolinguist and him, and I took Joe Hauser up there, who was a wildlife biologist at the time, and he did a flora flotta study on the, on the cap at the request of a scientist. But other than that, uh, no, there's, there's not many people know where it is, and they you can tell you where it's at, and you probably couldn't find it. It's really back there in the woods, uh, but it's a real pristine, beautiful area. But uh, When was the last time you uh, visited the camp? <clears throat> Uh, with David Polides in 2018. There was okay. a lot of fires in California going at the time. It was real smoky where we were. Nothing took place when he was there with his videographer. Uh, <clears throat> but that's not unusual. We take people in there that's got cameras and guns. And <clears throat> I say people. Uh, uh, I, I believe that's true wherever you go. If, you, uh, if you're out there to hunt them or to shoot something, if you don't understand it, uh, you're probably not going to see one of these things. Again, uh, there's not a lot of people know where it's at, and I've not taken a lot of people up there, so I keep it under eight or ten at the most. Do you believe that they're still out there? That yes. the same group might still be out there? You do? Yeah, you know, uh, I flew over in a small plane uh, just to see what kind of damage might be done by the fires, because that whole area, after we got out of there, uh, supposedly was on fire. But uh, a lot of the area right around where our camp is, every, several acres there, it looks like it hadn't been, trees were still there, so... Uh, somehow it missed it, uh, looks like. Or it will burn, underburned it, is what uh, I've been told. Fires do that sometimes. That's the last time I think anybody's been up there was in 2018. Is there, when you experienced these encounters and heard these sounds, was there any commonalities about what was going on, the time of day, what the season was, what the, what the group was doing, anything like that? Uh, usually in the evening, just at dusk or just after dusk, we'd, we'd go inside the shelter and Close up the door, which is just a log between two trees, and uh, they would start making their sounds. And that's how it generally was the first couple of years. Like I say, it wasn't until '74 when they started interacting with us when we were outside. I say interacting when they their sounds outside this when we were outside the shelter. And uh, the commonalities, uh, season-wise, you no, know, you can just about bank on them being there during deer season because I don't know. Why? Because all the guys were there and we was hanging deer and it was just, uh, we, they would move our deer, but they never took our deer. We found some big tracks on the eighth where we hang the deer one time, and, uh, more than once really. And we'd also find them when we brought hunting on foot, when there were horses and mules tied up, and uh, you come back and find some tracks around them, bigfoot tracks. But you got to wonder what they were doing with their animals, just curious or whatever. But uh, we had, whatever deer, wherever the deer were, we'd talk about it, Bill and I, because we were the packers, and we'd take the horse and mules and go bring the deer in on the, on the mules. You mentioned you went back in 2018, but you didn't experience anything. When was the last encounter you had in at the camp? Uh, I could tell you about a strange encounter we had up there in 2016. Sure. Yeah, uh, please. 2011 is when I actually heard the chatter the last time. And uh, I read about that in my book. Uh, Voices and wilderness. Uh, it was 2016. This uh, this light anomaly. Uh, I explained to people it's like a rod of light, about three, four foot long, and just come floating by the tent we had set up. And stopped sleeping in the shelter. Of course, shelter isn't there now because we took it down. Uh, but this light comes floating by us. I mean, floating, manipulating through the trees. And gosh, how do you explain that? I mean, <laughs> what do you do with that? You know, you don't know. You don't know. You just don't know what's going on. We just know 
nothing really surprises me anymore with this, uh, now that you get into the quantum aspect of things. Uh, a lot of things could happen. A lot of things has happened over the eons of time uh, with New Year people reporting all kinds of strange things, dog man and different crazy things. Well, I, I've experienced crazy things. And I, I don't know how to put it. And quantum science actually helps you answer some of those, like trackways just stopping, you know, with the trackways in, you mentioned that a minute ago. Well, I used to think, you know, just like so many research you do, well, the trackways in, that means it's a hoax. Somebody put them there and they just started making the tracks. Well, no, it doesn't have to be that way because everything is energy, vibration, and frequency. We are energy at the most minute level, according to science. And that, that energy cannot die, it can only change forms. And if these things have the ability to uh, to change their vibrational frequency into something that does not matter, like we're matter, uh, like a form, uh, they could they could disappear on you. And I mean, I think that's probably what's happening with these people who say they saw them disappear. I heard these people, several of them over the years say, I saw one disappear. And we're talking about credible people. I'm not talking about the woo-woo guy over here in the corner. Uh, there's some credible people I've talked to who said, no, that thing just dissipated right there in front of my eyes. And uh, I start, you know, questioning that. Then I wonder how many of these people could they really be lying or all of them confused or they being hypnotized thinking they saw it disappear or did it really disappear? Well, there is a science behind how that could happen. It's called vibration of frequency. And if you can get in the right vibration, you can change matter. And that's how I think these uh, masters of old did their miracles, was through uh, the laws of quantum physics. And we've been told we can do that, but we haven't evolved that far enough to understand just how all that works. We can read about it and understand it a little bit, but doing is another story. If I can learn how to change water into wine, <clears throat> I could save a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but just haven't learned to do that or walk on water yet. But it's a, it's it's a something that can happen if you just learn how. And uh, I think it's the laws of quantum physics. And a lot of it's being experienced now. I mean, totally. See, Darwinism does not explain how our consciousness works. It doesn't get in. It just gets into the physical evolution of things. And I don't disbelieve in evolution. But what I do believe is that. The troglodytes were here, no doubt about it. And they, there's history, there's artifacts, there's all kinds of things establishing that the troglodytes have been here for millions of years. Well, something happened to the DNA structure of the troglodyte when they evolved so far. And I think that's where we got our consciousness, that's where we got our, uh, our attributes that we have, telepathy. We, we have those attributes if we just learn how to, to access them. And we can do that, and there's a way to do that too. Uh, so anyway, uh, I think that's happened. I do believe in UFOs and aliens, and I think anybody has cut their head in the sand if they think we're the only intelligent life going out there. And I question our intelligent life. <laughs> I look into what some of these things have done. So I've been in Peru, I've been in Bolivia, I've been in Nepal, Russia, Siberia. I've been all over looking at the enigmas going on. and. You see these things, especially in South America, these big megalithic structures that have been put together, uh, 100-ton boulders and bigger. Uh, we can't do what they did. And this is ancient times, long time ago, the pre-Inca people. Incas didn't do that. They didn't have the tools to do that. 
to put together like a jigsaw puzzle, put up on top of a 13,000-foot mountain. You go there and see that stuff with your own eyes, and you realize you can't just put it up on the shelf. you got to try to figure out there had to be something here smarter than us to do that, <laughs> or they had a technology that we don't have, and we can't do it today anyway. And anyway, uh, uh, you, you start understanding that now the government's, you know, acknowledges UFOs and somebody's flying those things. So aliens are here. I think they've been coming here for eons. Our planet is, uh, is special. I think we're special, but our planet especially is special. There's a lot special right there, you know. Uh, it's got everything any species would want. It's got water. It's got, it's got everything. And uh, other planets in the solar system don't have that. Now, there's life outside of the solar system, sure, in the universe. Uh, but I think... I still think they come here, and they have been coming here for eons, and they have manipulated the species on this planet, uh, experimenting. And uh, there's a lot of programs out there now saying the same thing. I've been saying this for a while now, but I think uh, it makes me feel good because other people, scientists, are coming up with some of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's DNA manipulation going on. Well, something Waterboy was dealing with in the Sierras up there was, I had an alien component to it, I believe. You, we so you believe there's a you believe there's a connection between UFO sightings, aliens, and potentially these creatures as well. You think there's some connection between all of them? I, not all of them. I don't know that all of them. Uh, no, some of them may just be a relic hominid that's evolved up, and maybe they just scream and yell and beat on something every once in a while, but they don't talk. I, you hear that? I've heard a lot of people tell me. I've heard samurai chatter. I've heard exactly what you recorded where I was out over here in Canada or someplace. And, but most of the things you hear is a yell or a scream. And uh, uh, so I don't think they're all the same. And uh, that's kind of different. Most big players only believe, you know, the Patterson film is real. And so that or everything has to be hooked into that, you know. Well, no, it doesn't. Uh, not if you believe that different types of aliens have been here. And I believe that. And uh, you, you, brought, so, you brought up an interesting point about how most of the other recordings are screams or um, something that definitely sounds like more animalistic as compared to your recordings, which definitely sound like there's some sort of language involved. Have you ever heard any other recordings captured of these creatures that you think sound like the same sort of creatures that you captured? Uh, I've heard some chatter, but not as much as what you would hope for, because most people don't have the quality of recordings that we were picking up. I mean, they're really good to study, and you know, we, we're lucky. Uh, you hear the first report of them chattering with the uh, Albert Osman account of 1924 when John Green interviewed him years later. And I, I've been up in uh, Toby and Ludden looking, researching that myself, actually, my own airplane. And uh, uh, that's the first reported incident of they chattered amongst themselves according to uh, what John Green wrote in the book, Apes Among Us. And uh, but the chattering is kind of unique. It's not a lot of them do that, or they just don't do it to not expose themselves. When they start chattering, you know, it's going to expose them. If they just scream or yell, they can. They have a voice mechanism, which is at least the ones we dealt with, which is much superior to ours, and uh, that's that's kind of important. Uh, they can make sounds that are inside and outside the human range, the average human range, and it represents uh, the ones that Doctor. Uh, Curlin studied at the University of Wyoming, so they represent an animal about eight foot tall. And that's what we were experiencing up there, because two of the guys seen one very clear one night, and 
one night, I'd say the moonlight, and uh, just a few feet away from the shelter when it walked by, and they'd looking through the crack and seen it. And they said it was between eight and 10 foot tall, and it left a 19 inch footprint they seen the next morning. So, um, yeah, they, they, some chatter, some just scream and yell, but I don't know if they can all talk or not. Uh, I think some of these screams or yells are, are probably trying to call to a young one or tell another one that you're close by or something like that, and they don't want to expose themselves with the language. Hmm. And yeah, the reason you... The reason we feel pretty confident that this is language is because um, you had a crypto-linguist, Scott Nelson, review the tapes. That's correct. Um, could you talk a little bit about what his findings were, and then also, in case anybody isn't aware of what a crypto-linguist is, yeah. what, what that is? Scott Nelson uh, accidentally ran across these when he was looking for a project, or his son was looking for a project to work on in school, and uh, he got tied up. He heard the, the samples of the sounds that was on the BFRO.net, Matt uh, Moneymaker's website, and uh, he he called me up, and of course he liked so many others. I thought he was just a quirk trying to get into <laughs> trying to get into the camp or something. <laughs> Didn't know who he was really. He said, "You know, I, I want you to know I'm serious. He said, I'm a crypto linguist. I, he was um, retired from the Navy at the time. Uh, as a crypto linguist, he spent a career studying unknown sounds. If they represent a language, if there's any uh, mischief in the language, as far as uh, something bad or some." I'm trying to fool somebody else or whatever. So he said his life of studying languages. He's a two-time graduate of the, of the crypto-linguistic school in Monterey. I've got here somewhere, but not that anybody cares. But he, he, a uh, very credible person. I didn't know a guy like this existed. He made a trip all the way out from Missouri where he was teaching school at the time, uh, teaching foreign languages. And he uh, interviewed me and Al and... Uh, we gave him the context of sounds, and he, he took the sounds back and studied them, and he came back with a statement. He said, these things have language. And so why? Wow, we knew they were communicating with each other. No, language, that means something very special. That means a morphine stream of words which make a cognizant sapient sentence, and they have that. And according to Dr. Lieberman, 1968, at Brown University said, only humans have the vocal mechanism, which makes the hyoid bone <coughs> with the nerves connected to the tongue, which can process what you see to your thoughts, the language. Now, all dolphins communicate, everything communicates through pheromones or through some method, but they don't communicate with language like we do. And that made a whole world of difference because uh, Scott Nelson, by the way, is the guy that I've taken up there a few times now. He's been trying to capture some sounds and the batteries are going dead or something like that will happen. It's kind of discouraging because you might hear something by the time you get your recorder on uh, it's all over with it's like they well who knows but I, I think they if they are interdimensional and if they have that attribute at least the ones up where we go uh, time doesn't exist as we perceive it and according to quantum physics everything's in the now we only have to go through we go through as humans in this three-dimensional reality through a linear time and we have to experience tomorrow and well assuming you live and we know we experienced yesterday but there's a there's a lifespan that we go through day after day after day year after year and then we pass on to something else change forms according to physics and according to religions you go to heaven and or physics you just change to another dimension uh, but you don't die your, your entity whatever you are inside doesn't die your consciousness doesn't die and so Scott um 
I've become friends with him. We talk around different conferences occasionally, and uh, he, he's a fun guy, a uh, good guy, and he would encourage anybody to ever capture some sounds, uh, quality sounds. With the, uh, most people send it through me first. I kind of screen them because I know what he looks for. He looks for the morphing stream of words, and that's 10 or 12 words that make a sentence, like I said before. So if you don't have that, don't send him a yell or a scream or something like that. It doesn't mean a thing. He's a language expert, and I mean he's an expert. Not a whole lot of people have the ability that he has and the, uh, the education that he has and the, the hundreds, if not thousands of hours under what they call the cans, which is your headset, listening to languages and sounds. And, and we also had a human sound expert uh, in the middle of all that to listen to them. And she was only one of 10 in the state of California qualified to be a court interpreter in several languages. And she said, who or whatever made these sounds are... Uh, uh, it's way above what humans can do. She said, I challenge anybody to, to try to duplicate this. If you get some guy like Joe Rogan come out saying he can do it. Well, like, come on, Joe. He's a smart guy. He shouldn't be making, making sounds like that if he can't. He hadn't done his homework, you know. I had people chime on me the other day say, hey, Joe Rogan said, I don't even listen to the guy because he's rude and crude and he don't do his homework. You know, he just don't do his homework. And if he'd done his homework, he wouldn't have said what he said. Because for him to say that, it makes him look bad because he's saying Dr. Curlin's a fake, that Dr. Curlin's report don't mean a thing. And he's a professor of electrical engineering, so the tapes have not been manipulated. They are not. They hadn't been. We knew, what, we knew something was going up there. But now it's substantiated by him, by a crypto-linguist. Um, and you got all these people, all these people, too, <laughs> besides uh, Nancy Logan, she was the the human sound expert out of California. But uh, she has what they call perfect hearing, and uh, but nobody can duplicate those sounds. So I kind when of say nobody. Huh? When you say nobody can duplicate, did she? does she mean like the vocal ability, like a vocal cords in humans cannot reach this certain, like what What does that specifically mean? That means just with this, that, you know, what it means is they can't duplicate because they can't reach the frequencies. Now you got the... Uh, Guys like a thinker thunker, he's not a professional, so just what he says, but he did a 20 minute uh, analysis on this, which you can find on Sierra Sounds on his site. And he, he said that uh, he's, he's discovered that there's five octaves in one tone in some of these sounds, and humans can't do that. The most we can do is three octaves in one tone, and according to him. And I have yet to find a, a qualified person in the university and went to give a full study on that to talk about that aspect of it. Uh, that's true. Well, I have no reason to believe it isn't true, but then I can't really talk about that much because he's not, uh, he's not a sound deck. He's, he's, he does do his work, though. He did more work than Joe Rogan, did I tell you that? Because <laughs> uh, you, when you get them talking to each other, chattering amongst themselves, and we got that recorded, then you have a human stepping in the middle of it saying something. Uh, you, you can't do that. I mean, there's no sound of pre-recording or re-recording at altered speed, and that's been determined scientifically. And, you know, if there was a 60-cycle hum in there, that would have ring a bell right away because that means it would have been pre-recorded. That's what happens when you pre-record something. You get a 60-cycle hum in it. There was nothing like that in ours. And uh, that, that should tell somebody something. They just study what we've, what's gone, what we've gone through and what basically Al Berry went through. He fostered all this because he knew how important it was. We didn't realize how important it was until later on in years. We underestimated what we're dealing with. We'd have done things a little bit differently, probably. 
So, yeah, when Al Barry started um, looking into this, I mean, he, he was pretty skeptical of of the of what was going to he was going to find. But by the end, it sounds like he's pretty convinced that these creatures are out there and he's experienced it himself. Um, could you maybe just talk us through a little bit of his journey um, from, you know, coming to you all looking for a way that this could be hoaxed to becoming really a believer? Yeah, uh, like I said, it was 1972 when he went into camp, he and I went in, and uh, he went with uh, one Johnson also. But he uh, he first went to, uh, after he recorded these things, and he was he was still looking for the hoax. He's kind of hoping it would be a hoax, he told me one time, because it would be easier to answer if he could find some kind of evidence that somebody did that. Uh, but first he did, uh, he went into uh, ethnotonics research in New York City, who studied the uh, Nixon tapes of kind of top of line on studying tapes, they went to, uh, uh, he went to them and asked them if they could look into it. Well, they looked and said uh, the sounds were spontaneous and they were taken at the time of recordings. There was no 60 cycle hum, which was shown pre-recorded in the studio. They were too powerful to have been human made. And that was I.E. Teibel, a president of Syntonic Research. And this is all in Albury's book that he wrote in, I think, 1978. And uh, it's a, uh, it's interesting to him to want to see the track of, that he, uh, the track method, I should say, that he used. He went to him first, but he went to, they suggested he find a university to study him because they weren't going to do it for free. And uh, <clears throat> he found uh, Dr. Curran, University of Wyoming, who would take an unbiased look at it because you got to have a, he said, I want to either credit it or discredit it. I don't care. Just tell me the truth, whatever it is, how the study comes out. That's when, uh, that's when uh, Curlin did his study, and, and uh, I got that sound in my uh, presentation. Yeah, he, uh, it was outside the human range. It shows uh, the sound, uh, he shows a box in his report in that book, uh, like Monsters on Trial, and it shows where uh, uh, the animal that he was uh, checking into at that time with the sounds was uh, represented an animal eight, eight and a half foot tall. And uh, without knowing that, oh, excuse me, eight foot four inches, he said. But without knowing that, Dr. Uh, Denton, Benson, professor of electrical scientific, diagnostic scientists at Texas A&M, we tried to get him to study him just to get some cooperative stuff for Dr. Curlin years ago. And uh, he didn't know Dr. Curlin did it, I don't think, but he said that whatever he was listening to represented an animal eight and a half foot tall. They, they judge that by the human vocal track, you know, what, what it does and how big that man was that did it. And they take that average, I guess, and you know what an average is. So compared to the human vocal track, they're over eight foot tall, some of them. And uh, so that was Dr. Uh, uh, Benson, Texas A&M, that said that. But he was just too busy. He wouldn't take him on for a study. He said, just, of course, I, I think a lot of these guys too that are in this, they don't want their reputation right. uh, soiled. Yeah. That's just the way yeah, it goes. I think you, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. I mean, you talk about Bigfoot, and I think it gets harder to get funding for your research going forward, and exactly. which is unfortunate because exactly. I mean, there's obviously there's thousands of people telling these stories. There's regardless of you think it's a flesh and blood creature or not, there's something to it, mm-hmm. and it's worth looking into. Um, uh. Other than the recordings you've made, what do you think is some of the best evidence for these creatures' existence out there? 
I think our recordings are probably one of the best, if not the best, the evidence that people want to rely on, and I think it's the second best, if not the best, is the Patterson Gimlet film. Uh, I've been to research this thing now for so many years, and I've heard professionals chime in on that, that it's real, and uh, it's only been studied second to the Kennedy assassination, and uh, there's no zipper in the back of that thing, and there's no way um, we could have recreated that in 1967, according to the specialist who worked for Disney down there, uh, Walt Disney Studios. And uh, Bill Munns gave a special report on that. I've uh, known him, talked to him, with him for a few years, off and on. And he's a, he says, no, it's, it's definitely real. And uh, you get those guys, kind of guys chiming in on it. And you, you tend to go with that. Of course, I know Bob, too. Of course, Roger Patterson died so years ago, but... Bob's still with us. He's in his 80s, but he's still cognizant and floating around over in Yakima somewhere. And uh, he's a needle guy, but I don't think he'd be lying. I, uh, you just got to either believe him. Of course, maybe he, he, you know, if there was a something malicious behind it, he may not have even known about that part because Roger Patterson was the one who's really trying to, trying to understand it, you know, trying to get something on film while he had the camera there when they went into Bluff Creek that time. I think the the, the um, pace of the four hooves of pace coming through the creek probably buckled the sound. I'm sticking up on that one. That's how they got the picture. If if there's anyone listening who's interested in having an experience with these creatures, what, what sort of advice would you give them if they were going to go out and look? Well, uh, first of all, you won't find them. They'll find you, and it depends on your attitude and your vibration. If you've got a good vibrational frequency going on, that means don't try to analyze things. Just be simple. Just know that there's nobody else human playing with you. Yeah, it's, it's their their, uh, their time and their place. Just try to find a place where they've been seen quite a bit and uh, go there and set up camp and don't change things around. Just be still and don't jump up and down when they start hearing something like a big crack or a big whoop knock or something like that. Just be still. We found that's why I think we got to see them that night in 74 is because we knew from our experiences in the years past with these things that you just be still and just keep on doing what you're doing. They don't think they got your attention and you're not going to jump up and down and shine a flashlight out in the woods. That's one of the worst things you can do. Uh, if I don't think they got your attention, they'll keep getting closer and doing more. And that's what was happening with us that night. We didn't shine a light and uh, we didn't jump up and down. We just sat there, kept fixing my meal uh, on the stove. And so, there's a lot. I have a whole list of things to do and not to do. It's pretty much what you what you shouldn't do. It's more important than what you do. Some people uh, have the wrong uh, intentions, I think, and they just uh, you can't be the aggressor. Uh, they have to they have to make the first move. Uh, try not to be fearful because they can sense fear. And if you got guns and you're fearful, you're probably going to shoot at something you don't understand. And People don't understand these things. They're big, much bigger than we are. They're very, very elusive, though. And if you are close to them, you don't uh, don't don't shoot at them, and don't. I also suggest don't take in dogs because it'll screw the dog up if they start barking at them. They start to kill them. I've got that recorded too. A guy interviewed a tiny 911 call when he had his dog killed. Uh, yeah, and don't try to trick them because they'll see right through that. We tried to trick them. So many people ask, why did you get a picture? Well, 
Yeah, let me ex- uh, experience it up there. How can you get a picture? Well, it's not like you're trying to trick a bear or a mountain lion or something like that. It's they've got a consciousness about them, an intuitiveness about us that we don't, we don't, we didn't understand then. I do now, but you don't. I think I do. I always say I think I do. You don't know. Nobody really knows. We just think we know sometimes. But I think they have uh, different ones, different types. We never could get a picture. You know, we rigged up camera traps several times. Uh, they would go around the trap like they saw it. How do you see a black thread six, seven foot high uh, in the night? Well, maybe they watch this. I don't know. I just don't know. Something else. They'll toy with you. They'll see how far they can go without pissing you off or something. Or something. They just... Uh, they're different, and uh, they are uh, very intuitive, and they will see right through you, through your tricks. Uh, at least the ones I'm talking about, the ones I dealt with up there. Not ever, all, not all of them. Some of them you're just going to accidentally see, and if, if you're lucky to see one, good. But uh, if they go out of your perception, that's only because you only see within certain frequencies. Like we only smell within certain frequencies. We don't smell like a dog or a bear. We can't. We don't have the olfactory sense for that. We don't have the the uh, eyesight to see all frequencies. And we are limited with our three-dimensional light frequency, and it's within certain parameters. And when they step out of that, you're not going to see them. So uh, I say, uh, well, just be simple. Don't try to, you know, there's uh, stages you can get into, uh, like you're, we're in the beta state right now of awareness. We're talking to each other in a cognizant way, I think. And, uh, you go from that into alpha when you just relax. You're not trying to figure out everything. You're not asleep, but you're relaxed. You go from that into the theta state. And the theta state is where you have your lucid dreams, where you're not totally asleep, but you're kind of asleep. You know what I mean? And then after that, you go into deep sleep. And uh, But in, that's where Tesla got a lot of the answers to his problems when he came out of his theta state into his, uh, into his uh, awareness. But you can get in that state of just being simple and being, don't try to just relax and have fun. They they want us to be happy, and I think they at least the ones I dealt with. Um, there are some I think that can be aggressive, but maybe it's because people have been shooting at them. I don't know, but I I say uh, I think I think really the earth is is being screwed up by us, and I think they'd like for that to be changed. Uh, we shouldn't be killing people. We we need to uh, stop. Stop all that stuff. We're destroying the earth and everything. And, uh, don't go cutting up a bunch of trees around them. They don't like that for some reason. Uh, there's quite a bit to say about this. And, uh, we're limited here with an hour, so I, I'm sure you can. Well, I think you also, I mean, maybe I know you outlined some of this also in your books. If, if anyone wants to learn more about your experiences, what's the, what's the best place for them to learn more about this and read about your adventures? Uh, probably my book, Voices in the Wilderness, my chronicle, and it comes with a uh, uh, download of the sound. So when I talk about the sounds in the, in the book, you can hear the actual sound. And that's on Amazon. It's called Voices in the Wilderness. And uh, my website is ronmorehead.com, M-O-R-E-H-E-A-D. And uh, people can order these things through that. Uh, I also have the CDs. It's all, all this stuff is downloadable, too, and most costly. And you can download it and read it on your iPad or whatever. And uh, I've produced two CDs. Uh, one's uh, narrated by Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek Next Generation. And it's Alberry's story, and it's got the aggressive sounds in it. 
the second CD I have is volume two, and it's Bigfoot Recordings, and I narrate that. And it's about the experience I had in 74 and, and more than that, but it's, I got the sounds of the wind knocking sounds, the uh, rock clocking, the whooping sounds, and my interaction with them. That's in the second volume. And, uh, these are all downloadable. Uh, Voices and Wilderness is, uh, with sound bites too, and then uh, you got the Quantum Bigfoot. These are on, available through my website, ronmoorhead.com. Let us know if you think Bigfoot could be more than a flesh and blood creature on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.